open our eyes that we might understand and behold wonderful things from your word this morning, God. I pray, God, that you'll help us to apply the truths that we learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, children. You're um, dismissed for the children's lesson. This will be our concluding message in the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's been a wonderful journey for me. I've never preached through the book of Nehemiah before, and it's been a challenge, but I've loved going through it, getting to understand the people of Israel in this post-exile time that they were living in. Um, it helps me understand the minor prophets, uh, particularly Malachi, which we'll be looking at just a little bit today, understanding the cultural context behind the teaching of that prophet. Um, let's stand together as we read just selected verses. We're not going to read the entire chapter, obviously. It's too long to do that. But I have some selected verses that I'd like for us to look at. And I want you to be looking at a pattern that you will see to develop in these verses. So the first verses that we're going to read are 4 and 5, and then we'll drop down to verse 9. We'll cover all of this in our exposition this morning, but just for the sake of reading, I want you to see the pattern. So Nehemiah 13, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 9, which is our first set. Now before this, Elishab the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God was allied or he was a close relative the word literally just means near so it could be a near kinsman same word is used that way in the book of Ruth or it could be near in the sense that they have joined affinity together and it could be that they were related and therefore they became allied so the idea is that they are one and they're drawing close and what Elishab has done as he has gotten into an allegiance with Tobiah of all people and he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings the frankincense the articles the tithe of the grain the new wine and oil which were commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the offering for the priests. Verse 9, Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Let's read verse 10 and then 11 as well. I also realized that the portion for the priests had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. Verse 11, So I contended with the rulers, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their place. Let's read 15 and 16. 
In those days I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which were brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about that day which they were selling provisions. And now verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said, What evil thing is this that you do? Why do you profane the Sabbath? Let's go down to verse 20 and 21. Now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of ware, they lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. Verse 21, then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night all around the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Look at 23 and 24, and then the conclusion of verse 25. 23 and 24, in those days also I saw Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. Verse 25, so again, I contended with them and I cursed them. I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair and I made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to the sons, nor take the daughters for your sons, for yourselves. You may be seated. So hopefully you can see some patterns there that started to emerge throughout this chapter. Um, as you're seated, seated there, seating, <laughs> I want you just to look at verse 6 of this chapter, and it'll help you understand why things went awry so quickly. What in the world happened? I mean, just a couple chapters back, we read where they entered into a covenant not to give their wives, not to violate the Sabbath, not to stop giving the offerings, not to neglect the house of God. And within a short space of time, things had kind of fallen apart, and Nehemiah takes quick action. But verse 6 tells us what happened in between. But during all this... Here's the commentary on it. I was not in Jerusalem. That's all it took. Nehemiah to go back for a short span of time, back to Artaxerxes, back to the king of Persia, to report in as the king's cupbearer. We're not told how long he was, but we can assume that it was probably less than a year because it doesn't use the word year. It uses certain days. So let's go ahead and read the rest of that verse. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And then it picks it up, the context historically in verse 4, it says, Now before this, Elisha the priest, having authority over the storerooms in the house of God, he allied himself with Tobiah. Verse 7 goes on to say, And I came... To Jerusalem, I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw out all of the household of goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back in all the articles 
and all the grain offering that belonged in that storeroom. Now, what we're seeing in this, this chapter is several things, four things in particular, that Nehemiah simply was not going to tolerate. Um, he was going to contend for the spiritual welfare for this, this remnant group that really was God's last testimony to a world around them of the covenant God of Israel. This was, this was God's people. This was his messengers, you might say. They were announcing to the world the Messiah, and they were living no different from the worlds around them. They had absorbed their culture, their language, and it would just be a matter of time before they begin to accept their gods. So there are certain things that you and I simply should not tolerate. Tolerance is a virtue. It's the willingness to put up with something, in particular the existence of opinions and behaviors that are different from our own. So in that sense, tolerance is a, a virtue. Um, it's often was demonstrated even by Jesus. Jesus had a lot of tolerance for his disciples, didn't he? He was patient with them. He was long-suffering. He didn't give up on them. But never did Jesus use tolerance to leave a person in ignorance. Nor did he use tolerance to allow people to have a false belief system. Jesus tolerated unbelief in his disciples for a short period of time. He tolerated their misconceptions about the kingdom and who was going to be the greatest and all sorts of falsehoods. But it was only with the hope of exposing and then correcting their false understanding with love and with truth. Unfortunately, tolerance in our culture, in our society today, tolerance has become the epitome of what it means to be a good person. But tolerance has nearly been redefined and that now we are living in a world where there is no objective truth. Therefore, no one has the right to question anyone's moral position. In effect, we're living in a generation that lacks discernment and common sense. In 1925, evolutionists were bemoaning the fact that they were not given an opportunity to teach their viewpoints in the American students. Some of us may be familiar with the Scopes trial. John Scopes was the attorney on the side of the evolutionist. And he argued, I quote this, For God's sake, let the children have their minds. Keep open. May they be able to choose their own destiny. Close no doors of learning to them. Shut no door for their knowledge. And so tolerance expanded into our nation's scientific curriculum. And here's the irony. Today, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. In fact, I'll quote to you from an unnamed professor at the University of Missouri, and he kept his name in this article um, 
anonymous for fear of losing his job. And this is what he had to say. Those who would be crying intolerance in 1925 are now themselves the most intolerant of anything that does not align with their views or even hints at the possibility of an intelligent designer. To mask tolerance behind the guise of loving is one of the greatest lies that have been perpetrated on society. Love speaks the truth. This pattern has led to tolerating the most evil and vile behaviors, all in the name of virtue. Jesus never tolerated hypocrisy. He never tolerated envy, jealousy, pettiness, or pride. In this passage today, we'll see four things that Nehemiah refused to tolerate in his generation and how we can apply them to our Christian lives. Nehemiah had been out of Jerusalem for perhaps nine months, ten months, we don't know for sure, and got back to Persia. It also shows us how quick the human heart is to regress without absolute standards and how quick we are to forget our past and take hold of something that will destroy our future generation's faith. It shows us man's tendency to digress rather than to progress. In this chapter, we will notice that Nehemiah had a pattern of leadership. Four times he identified what was being violated. Four times he demanded repentance. And four times he gave instructions on how to get back on the right path. So what are some of the things that we should never tolerate? Well, the first thing that Nehemiah was not going to tolerate is when the temple of God is no longer used for the express purpose that God designed it for. We as believers should never tolerate the watering down of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor the absolute authority of the Bible. This is what God has ordained the church for. Paul told Timothy when he left in Ephesus, I am leaving you, Timothy, so that you will charge them to teach no other doctrine. Then Paul went on to tell Timothy, he says, until I come, I'm leaving you this letter because the church is the pillar and the foundation for the truth. Till I come, give attention to reading to doctrine, to reproof and correction. For in so doing, you will not only save yourself, but also those that hear you. So something that we cannot tolerate, something that Nehemiah would not tolerate, is when the temple of the Lord is no longer used for the designated purpose that God had designed for it. It was the place where everyone in the nations could turn to and find hope when Solomon dedicated that temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, he says, When any time a stranger or a foreigner turns toward this temple, may you hear from heaven that they may know that there is a God in Israel. And what had Elisha done? 
He had given a room in the temple that was designated for the tithes, for the offerings, for the grain, and he had actually given it to the enemy of God's people, Tobiah. Tobiah, we're told in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, he was grieved when Nehemiah came back to seek the welfare of God's people. And yet here he has a room in God's house, and Nehemiah was not going to put up with it. The purpose of the chamber was for storing grain and offerings and tithes for God's minister. So you and I are to have a zeal for God's program. You remember when Jesus took the cord and he went into the temple and he drove them out? There was a verse that the apostles remembered later on. The zeal of my house has consumed me. You and I need to be zealous for God's house and for our reason for being here as God's people. It says in verse 8, 13, 8, And it grieved me bitterly, and I threw out Tobiah's stuff. I want you to just turn over to 2 Corinthians and show you an example of a man who was zealous for God's people for God's church, for a covenant bride that God had with his church. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're just going to look at this real quick. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. And Paul says, Oh, I would that you would bear with me in a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me. For I am zealous. Now the translation says jealous, but it's the Greek word zeleo, which means to have a zeal for. Just like Nehemiah, just like Jesus, Paul says, I am jealous. I am zealous for you, but it's with a godly jealousy. And here's the reason why he is jealous for them. For I have betrothed you to one husband. And why one husband? That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What was his fear? I fear that lest how somehow the serpent deceived ease by his craftiness, so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, someone preaches a different gospel, or you receive a different spirit from what you have received. And here it is. I am afraid that you might tolerate it, that you might just accept it. You may put up with it well. So four things that we can apply here. One, we need to have a godly jealousy for God's house and for God's truth and for for his message to go forward. We need to have a fear of corruption because it promotes deception. The devil is subtle and he wants to lure us away from pure devotion of God, singleness, simplicity, sincerity, mental honesty in serving God. And we shouldn't bear with any doctrines that undermine or compromise the complete authority of Scripture. The second thing that Nehemiah would not tolerate, he would not tolerate broken promises. Because broken promises have a chain effect. When one commitment is is unfulfilled, it affects everyone around us. And we can see the spiraling effect of breaking this promise. So let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 13. 
verses 10 through 13, Nehemiah 13, 10 through 13, I also realized that the portion of the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. The word gone back, the Hebrew word barach, literally means they fled. If you've got an old King James, it actually uses the word they fled. It's almost as if they had to panic. There's no way that they can provide for themselves, and they fled. They were almost as if they were being persecuted, and they, they forsook their jobs. They went back to the fields. So I contended with the rulers, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their place. Then all of Judah brought their tithe offering, their grain, their new wine to the storehouse. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouse, Shemaiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, and Pediah, and the next to them, Haniah, the son of Zakur, and the son of Mathan, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. So here's a promise that had been broken. So if we go back to chapter 10 of Nehemiah, we can see that the rulers and the nobles had entered into a curse, a covenant, a promise, a pledging not to break off the tithe and the giving. So Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 35, it says, And we made ordinances to bring the fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of our trees year by year to the house of our Lord. Let's jump down to verse 37. To bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil, the priests, to the storerooms for the house of God and to bring the tithe of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithe of our farming communities. So we can see how when you break your commitments, and this is something that we as believers should not tolerate, when people of God make a commitment to one another, and we come together as a church body, we need to take those commitments seriously. Because every one of you has been given a spiritual gift. And when that gift is neglected, the entire body of Christ will suffer for it. So what did he do? He held them accountable. Their previous commitment had been neglected. And consequences came about because of it. So what happened because... They didn't keep their commitment to bring their offerings. The first thing that happened, the Levites had to flee back to the fields, didn't they? And then what happened to the, to the, the temple worship? It, in effect, ended. So he contended with the rulers. Then the congregation did the right thing. So here's our application. We need to find faithful people. This is exactly what Nehemiah did. He went out and he found faithful people. I want to quote to you, from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, Paul again writing his protege, young Timothy, and he says, Timothy, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who can teach others also. And then he goes on to tell what a faithful man is. 
He says, no warrior, no soldier ever enters into the army without enduring hardship. So to be faithful means that you endure the hardship. The second thing he says, no one enlisted ever entangles himself in the affairs of this world so he can please the one who's chosen him to be a soldier. So a faithful person doesn't get entangled with worldly distractions that choke your faith. You endure hardship. You don't get entangled. Next thing he says, he says, if any man strives for masteries, that's old King James English, If anybody is an athlete who is striving for a victor's crown, he is not crowned unless he strives lawfully, or New English would be, you don't get the prize unless you follow the rules. So faithful people take the word of God as their rule book, and they live by it. And then he says, the husbandman who labors hard is the first partaker of the fruit. That's what it means to be a faithful person. It means you're hardworking, you strive according to the word of God, you don't get entangled in the things of this world, and you endure hard things. And Nehemiah and you and I as spiritual people, we say these are things that we will not tolerate. The next thing that he would not tolerate, 15 through 22, is when spiritual priorities are flaunted for simple temporary gains. You and I are living for an eternal kingdom. How could we give up our birthrights as children of God for a pot of stew like Esau did? We should never tolerate that. And Nehemiah was not going to tolerate the forsaking of the Sabbath just so people could make a better income on that day. Now, I, I know there's a lot of people who have to work on the Sabbath or work on Sundays, and I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is this biblical principle of taking priorities that are spiritual and putting them on the back burner for a temporal privilege or a temporal gain or a temporal pleasure that is fleeting. By forsaking the Sabbath, they lost their testimony and their ability to be messengers for God. You're saying, well, that's pretty extreme, isn't it, Pastor? No, it's not. You see, the covenant was signified and ratified by keeping the Sabbath. That was the sign to every other nation around them that they were God's people, that God created the universe in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and it was designed to show a God who cared and loved for his people. And it was pointing to a future rest in Jesus Christ. And that's Israel's role in the Old Testament. That's what God designed them to do. And they had forsaken it. And Nehemiah was not going to tolerate it. The Sabbath was a sign that represented the only one true God. It was designated as a blessing to all people, and the nation of Israel was to be a blessing pointing people to the Messiah. He cautioned and warned them that they had done this in previous generations, and look what had happened. Let's go down to 13 and verse 18. Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster upon this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Praise the Lord 
that they got busy right after his rebuke. The application for us, we are God's distinct people. We worship a risen Lord. We come together on the first day of the week, and this is our proclamation to the world that our Savior reigns. The last thing that Nehemiah simply would not tolerate is when compromise enters because it leads to a sharp decline. When you compromise just a little, you're opening the door to a slippery downward slope. I've seen it after denomination after denomination. I've seen it Christian colleges after Christian colleges that entered into a alliance and covenants with worldly philosophies, worldly priorities, and not long after, those schools are no longer banners for the truth. And what did they do? They began to intermarry. And what happened to the children? It wasn't long. One generation away, and they could no longer speak the Hebrew language. Now, why is that so detrimental to a culture? You strip them of their language and you strip them of their heritage. That's exactly what happened in Ireland. They made the Irish language illegal and they lost identity with their forefathers. And you can take a people over. That's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar tried to do. He changed Hebrew names to pagan names from Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah to Belshazzar, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And when you take away that, you take away their historical identity as God's people. And not only that, they could no longer open the Torah and read God's word. And Nehemiah said, we can't allow this to happen. And the third thing that's so important, God promised Abraham through your descendant, through your seed, singular, Paul says in the book of Galatians, I will bless all nations. This has been the enemy's strategy all the way from the garden. It is to dilute God's people so they no longer clearly give a distinct sound in the trumpet. And we are God's trumpeters in the New Testament. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, made one step too many away from God. And it all began with what seemed like an innocent compromise. Even before he built the temple, Solomon had made a political alliance with the king of Pharaoh of Egypt and married the daughter of Pharaoh simply to seal a political alliance. Next thing he did, he built a temple for her. Next thing he did, he began to take wives of Moab Wives of Ammon. And then he began to build temples for Moloch and temples for Kamash. And it wasn't long before Nehemiah, I mean Solomon's heart, had completely departed from the living God. And Nehemiah sees this. And he says, we'll have none of it. So turn to 23 through 27. In verse 23... In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, 
Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but they spoke according to the language of their other people. So I contended with them and I cursed them. Boy, I mean, this guy goes, he, and imagine that today if we met somebody that was out of line in the church and we went up and smacked them up and started pulling their hair out. And I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives or sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for yourselves. And then look what he warns them. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, by these things? Yet among many nations there was no one like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we... Then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgress against our God by marrying pagan women. From 1 Kings, let me just read this to you. For Solomon went after Eshtareth, the goddess of the Zidonians. He went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and his heart was not at peace with Jehovah as David his father. Then Solomon built high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. He built hills to worship pagan gods before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise, for all of his strange wives, he burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And it all started with a treaty with Pharaoh to take his daughter to seal a political alliance. So what should you and I not tolerate? What is the application? There's a lot of application, but I boiled it down just to one verse, Luke 16, 13. Our God is a jealous God. He says, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll cleave to one and despise the other. And you and I, we cannot serve two masters. We can't tolerate that in our Christian lives. So what are the four things that you and I should not tolerate as believers in Christ? One, when God's house and God's people and God's church is used for anything other than what God promoted it for. The second thing is when we break our covenants, break our promises, and we're not faithful to the commitments that we've made to God's people because it has spiraling effects to others. Thirdly, when we want a temporal gain just to to satisfy a desire that advocates God's plan for his people. And then lastly, the slippery slope of compromise. Now, what was it that motivated Nehemiah in all this? Was he wanting some kind of political clout? Was he wanting to be king as they accused him of? There was only one thing, and we find this also in the same chapter. His motives were simply to please God. So I want us just to look at four quick prayers, really quickly, and you're going to see these prayers are beautiful. Verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. Why did he do them? For the house of my God and for its service. This is what drove Nehemiah. Verse 22. The end of verse 22, the last paragraph of 22. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, 
and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Remember me, God. I'm doing it for your house. Remember me, God, and I'm asking for your great mercies and spare me and protect me. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood. His motivation was to purify God's people and God's leaders. The end of the book, what a fitting last phrase for the book of Nehemiah. Remember me, O my God, for good. When we do our good deeds, and when we do our prayers, and when we do our fasting, it's before God, and we're asking God to remember us. So I'm asking us today as a church, don't buy into this, con- this, this constant bar- bar- bombardment of tolerance because it's nothing but a guise. It's nothing but Satan's lie. Taking something that is good and twisting it and perverting it and taking it too far because there are some things that you and I as believers simply should not and cannot tolerate if we're going to continue to be a lighthouse for a lost world that needs Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you, God, for North Valley Bible Church. I thank you, God, that you are drawing people to this assembly who love Jesus and who love your word and who love one another. God, as a church body, God, we today again remind ourselves that when Solomon made that first initial step away from the covenant God of Israel, it led him headlong into idolatry, which ended up into a divided nation and a divided kingdom. God, I pray, I pray for us today as a people here at North Valley, God, that we would understand the purpose of the local church. Our purpose, God, that you have set forth in the New Testament is to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, and teach everything that you commanded. God, I pray that we would avoid the temptation of looking at what is expedient and not looking at what is holy, as they did with the Sabbath. And God, I pray today for our church, God, that we would keep our covenants with each other, that when we committed to come to North Valley Bible Church, we've committed here to stay and to use our gifts for one another, because God, there is a spiraling effect when we don't keep our promises to one another and to God's word. Someone always pays for it. So Father, today, God, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful story of Nehemiah. Thank you for the application. And God, I ask that you would just help us to live by it today. In Jesus' name.